Into the Bad Quaker Podcast, where liberty is our mission. Today is Monday, August 5th, 2013. This is podcast number 337, and my name is Ben Stone. And uh, as usual, I want to mention the Bad Quaker t-shirts and stickers that are now available. If you go to badquaker.com, look across the front there, and it'll say something like uh, Bad Quaker Gear or Buy, Buy Bad Quaker Gear or something like that. Uh, right in the upper right-hand corner of the, um, well, right below the pictures of the faces of all the old ugly guys. And you'll see that there. Follow that link. That'll take you to a page with another link that says click here to buy T-shirts and stickers. That'll take you over to Survival to Survival Gear Bags. And our friend Kelly over there uh, is handling the marketing of the T-shirts and the uh, the stickers for us. So if you do that, uh, you can get a nice t- a nice T-shirt with the new design that uh, one of our listeners provided for us, and a uh, really cool design, and we really appreciate that. And uh, uh, you can support the podcast while getting yourself a really cool sticker and a really cool T-shirt, and everybody is happy. So um, also, I want to mention something about, you know, I've been talking about these secure telephones. I've been bragging about these secure telephones. And sometimes I've been putting the Freedom Fiends uh, commercial in our in our commercial loop, so that you get to hear uh, you know their commercial. Um, I I, I want to mention that even though I I am using one of these phones, um, I they're not a sponsor or anything like that. The Freedom Fiends are just nice enough to provide me with one just so that I can chat with uh, with Michael Dean and and we can you know talk about stuff. And um, so I'm getting the use of the free phone, but we're not getting any you know uh, there's there's no money coming towards BadQuaker.com uh, for running these commercials. We're run with the if somebody follows the instructions on the commercial and they buy these phones uh, from this uh, from this phone company then it helps the freedom fiends uh, but uh, but I just want to make clear that this is something we're doing here at badquaker.com to help the freedom fiends and in return we're getting uh, the free use of the phone out of it so there's no cash uh, transferring there I don't know that that's really all that important but um, I thought I might mention it and we and you know I do really appreciate the use of the phones they're really cool I play with it all the time because it's a really good uh, uh, mp3 player as well um, and I want to mention something else the freedom fiends are going to be talking about real soon is the the big bear cat buyback program where honest folks can can take these evil machines of war and with no questions asked take them to uh, to mark edge up there in New Hampshire and just you know just turn in these horrible uh, weapons of war and get them off the streets of America and, and mark edge will give you a five dollar gift certificate for Walmart 
Uh, how American is that, right? You turn in one of these evil uh, machines of war, these Bearcat uh, tanks. They're not really tanks. They're armed personnel carriers. But um, but you turn in one of these things, one of these horrible, monstrous machines, and Mark Edge will give you five bucks, $5 gift certificate for Walmart. Now, what a deal is that? So we want to, uh, as, as the Freedom Fiends are going to make a, a sort of a big deal out of this, we definitely want to support them on that as well. Um, now, to kind of get into today's today's podcast, may sort of um, be a little disjointed because the you know the, I'm I'm going to kind of hit some some things that I talked about last week, and I'm going to hit some current events, and it's not going to be the normal podcast where I take one issue and just really delve into it and and tear it apart and really go after it. So I'm going to bounce around a little bit. One of the things I wanted to talk about is. Um, there's this latest story that that seems to be bouncing around libertarian circles, and a lot of ANCAPs are uh, are intrigued by it and so forth. And I'll get into it in, in just a second. But it it kind of um, it, I think it allows libertarians to fall into a uh, follow into a trap that um, that libertarians tend to uh, to not learn this lesson decade after decade. It's the thing that was catching up libertarians in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s and the 90s and the 2000s. And now here we are today, 2013, and libertarians seem to not uh, have learned this lesson. And I really see it as a, as a two-part lesson. One is uh, um, depending on the low-hanging fruit and the other is allowing your enemy to define you. Now, what I mean by that, um, you know, the, the old phrase, if you're not familiar with it, there's an old phrase that talks about uh, low-hanging fruit. So, you know, it's a lot easier to to pick the, the, the fruit, the apples or whatever, the oranges. It's a lot easier to pick the low-hanging fruit that's hanging right there where you can get to it really easy than it is to put the effort into getting up into the tops of the tree and getting the uh, what's actually the higher quality fruit uh, where it's up there where the sun can get to it and so forth. And libertarians tend to, uh, you know, there's, there's topics that are really easy for us to point out the tyranny of government. And so rather than delve into the root problem of government, libertarians tend to, uh, to mess around with the low-hanging fruit. We want to talk about, oh, you know, the drug war is bad. Well, duh. Or we want to talk about, uh, you know, some other uh, individual issue like that. Rather than delving into the philosophical uh, aspects, because sometimes that's intimidating or sometimes it's hard uh, you, you know, time-wise, if you're talking to somebody, it's difficult to say, okay, now sit down and let's take the next 45 minutes or two hours and let's talk about, you know, first principles. Let's talk about zero aggression or non-aggression. And, and it, you know, it takes a lot of effort and it takes a lot of time uh, to initiate that kind of conversation and then go into it with any kind of depth to really make a case. And you know, uh, so much nowadays, at least in American culture, so much is based on the, uh, you know, it, 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 if it's not a, a blipvert advertising that's 30 seconds and on to the next thing, then it's, uh, you know, it's a pop song that's uh, two minutes and 30 seconds long, and then it gets to that and it just cuts it off, and now let's get to the next pop song. And there's no, there's no depth, there's no structure 
in the American um, discourse today. It, it has a tendency just to want to throw out a headline, maybe a paragraph of a story, and move on to the next thing. Everything has to you know, fit into this uh, two-minute, 30-second um, attention span, uh, you know, pop drugs uh that that's that's kind of that's kind of what american culture has gotten into it wants everything fast everything quick let's move on to the next one and so that makes it really difficult uh if you allow that mindset to uh to take to take over your conversation then it makes it really difficult to sit down with someone and say all right well let's not worry about individual issues let's talk about the principles that support the way a person thinks and the way they believe and the way morality is developed and the way the way we can understand what is ethical and what is not ethical but rather than do that it's just a lot easier to say well the war on drugs is bad well yeah okay and so that's, that becomes low-hanging fruit, that among other things. And so we end up talking about the same thing that the Democrats and the Republicans talk about all the time, or the same thing that the, uh, you know, that the uh, Greenpeace people are talking about, or the same thing that the, any other group like that, whether we're talking about anti-war, whether we're talking about you know, gay rights or whether we're talking about um, you know, morality laws like prostitution or whether we're talking about wasteful taxes and you know, government spending, we end up falling into the trap of talking about individual policies or individual, uh, you know, individual topics rather than talking about the substance of, uh, of principles that actually allow us to judge other things, to judge all things, and to be able to recognize good from evil without having to memorize what our stance is, what our platform is on each and every different issue. Now, uh, so, so we see this. Um, I, I mentioned that a, a story that's bouncing around libertarian and ANCAP circles. There's a, an article that came out in uh, The Telegraph, and it's published. I'm probably going to just rip this poor guy's name all to pieces, but it's something like Alistair Baverstock. Alistair Baverstock, it looks like. Hmm. It's pretty bad when I can't even pronounce English names. But yeah, anyway, um, so he did this story, and it's getting a lot of play. Uh, the, the title of the, uh, of the story is uh, Uruguay and Marijuana, A Guide to the World's Most Libertarian Countries. The world's most libertarian countries. Hmm. Now, this is by a guy. Um, I went through and started looking at other stories that he's written, and I'm not going to say that. Yeah, you know, I'm not going to try to put him down. He 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 wrote some, um, you know, some some interesting stories. He tends to write about outdoor stuff, bicycling, canoeing, things like this. And uh, I, I, I and I went beyond that. I wrote, I read some of his other stories that are based on politics and some current events and stuff. And I couldn't find the slightest hint that he knew anything about libertarian or that he was in any way associated with any kind of libertarian movement or libertarian theory or anything else having to do with the liberty movement or libertarians or libertarian philosophy or anything. So essentially, what we have is somebody from the outside determining what what we are or determining what the liberty movement is or what the liberty um uh what libertarian theory is 
And and I think this really, and again, this has been going on since the 60s. It's really easy to dangle something in front of a libertarian, like, like, you know, the drug war. Dangle that in front of a libertarian and watch him go off for the next two hours talking about drugs or talking about drug policy or drug or the drug wars or how horrible the police state is. But, you know, so often we do that rather than setting aside that that really easy fruit that's easy for us to pick that's hanging right in front of our nose and going back and saying, all right, well, what's the real root of the problem, though? The root of the problem is not the drug war. The root of the problem is not whether or not drugs exist at all. The root of the problem goes back to where is the aggression? Who's the aggressor? Why is aggression taking place? And who is initiating this aggression? And and so you, if you can just ignore all that fruit that's hanging in front of your face, push through it and get in and find the root, then you have a much better opportunity of changing hearts and minds rather than just, you know, out there filling your belly full of, of you know, overripe fruit that's uh, sweet and handy and all that kind of thing. So back to this story, this, uh, this story that this guy uh, published, Uruguay and Marijuana, a Guide to the World's Most Libertarian Countries. Just that title alone should tell you that this guy knows nothing about libertarianism. So, uh, so if you get into the story, what he does is he categorizes uh, a group of countries, and he goes by and lists these, you know, the countries and, and how it is that he feels they're more or less libertarian according to a couple of issues. And the issues that he's dealing with is uh, drugs, gay rights, prostitution, taxes, and corruption. And, and so these are libertarian, in his eyes, these are libertarian issues. And, the, and again, the problem is that libertarians all around the world are eating this story up and passing it back and forth and, you know, Twittering it or tweeting it or, or Facebooking it or whatever. And they're, and they're sending it back and forth. And it even popped up on Lou Rockwell this morning. And, and everybody's so, oh, look at this. Here's a very libertarian country. No, 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 it's not. No, I don't care. You know, okay, so Portugal has a, a a little bit looser drug policy than, say, Spain or than than Italy or France. So what? So what? It's not libertarian. The policy itself is not libertarian. The fact that the government made a policy proves that it's not libertarian. And you don't even have to be anti-government. Yes, I'm an anarchist, but you don't have to be an anarchist to understand that the government making a policy referencing the, the private use of drugs is not libertarian. It doesn't matter what the policy is. It's not libertarian because the core of libertarianism is the zero aggression principle. And that principle states that as long as somebody's not affecting somebody else, as long as person A is not aggressing upon person B, then whatever person A is doing is none of person B's business. And government coming into it and trying to authorize or, 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 uh, or forbid or give a license for or give a permit for or regulate in some way what the price or what the structure, the pricing structure or what the taxation of it is, all of these things are side issues. The point is the zero aggression principle or the non-aggression principle, if you prefer. It's the fact that whatever the person A is doing, if it's not aggressing on anyone else, 
then it's no one else's business. It's that simple. And bringing government into it for whatever reason, and again, this is not, I'm an anarchist, this is not necessarily an anarchist position, but in true libertarianism, whatever person A is doing, if they're not aggressing on anyone else, then it's no one else's business. And it's certainly not government's business to authorize it or to forbid it or to negate it or to tax it or regulate it or adjust it in any way. If person A is not aggressing, then that's the end of the topic. And it doesn't matter whether we're talking about, in this case, drugs, gay rights, prostitution, taxes, or corruption. It's not an issue-based thing. It's based on principle. And this is what so many people can't understand when they look at libertarians who are constantly talking about issues. They, and then, and then it, it becomes very confusing as to, well, what do these crazy libertarians want? And the problem comes in here is that, you know, there's this lazy tendency um, to, to, to avoid that longer conversation, to avoid that more complicated conversation, and just get to it and say, well, you know, uh, the, the drug war is bad. Well, that's a simplistic approach, and, and, and it may get attention – but it doesn't solve the problem, and all it does in the long run is just confuse people as to what libertarianism is. So libertarians should avoid the lazy, dishonest trap of, uh, of allowing individual um, policies or individual uh, you know, topics to rule the conversation. Uh, libertarians should avoid calling themselves socially liberal and fiscally, uh, fiscally conservative because that, you're, you're allowing yourself to be defined by the terminology of your enemies when you do this. It sounds inconsistent. In, specifically, if you're dealing with liberal, liberals or conservatives or people who maybe have been exposed to enough of the, of the liberal and conservative uh, thoughts that they at least recognize uh, where, these, where these two camps are coming from. So when you call yourself socially liberal but fiscally conservative, um, what that means is you're inconsistent. Uh, you're inconsistent to to you know to the to the political discussion that's going on today. That's what they think when they hear you say that. It doesn't make them think, "Oh, well, that's great. You must be right on." No, it makes them think, "Oh, so you're inconsistent." And see, that's the thing about libertarianism is that libertarianism is the only consistent philosophy. Non-aggression and the non-aggression principle or the zero-aggression principle is consistent. Now, we don't always apply it consistently, and that's, that's the great task for all of us, is to apply the zero-aggression principle in our own lives consistently. And as we look at different issues, we think, okay, well, where's the aggression here? Is there aggression? And, and we isolate these things and think them through. But to fall into the trap of, of just uh, having a list of items, you know, a list of talking points or hot-button hot issues, and then going through and making a check mark on each one of them. This is the libertarian issue here. This is the libertarian position. We're taking the libertarian position on this, and we're taking the libertarian position on that. Well, you have fallen into a trap that's going to make you look exactly like the right and exactly like the left, exactly like Democrats, exactly like Republicans, exactly like liberals, exactly like conservatives. You're, you fall into the trap of just being more of the herd 
rather than being a disciplined individual who actually has a position that is founded on a solid, consistent philosophy. And, the, and when you do that, you know, when you, when you look um, wishy-washy like that, when you look like you really don't understand things, and that's why you say you're, you're a little bit country and a little bit rock and roll, you're like, well, I'm sort of in the middle. No, all that's wrong. You're not in the middle. We're not moderates. We're the mo- especially in the anarchist end of uh, libertarian thought, we are the most radical of all thoughts, uh, you know, of all the camps of, of uh, political thinking out there, we're by far the most radical. So there's no use in trying to whitewash that or trying to sell it as something that it's not. It's, it's, this is, uh, not only is it inconsistent, it's dishonest to, to paint yourself in that way. And keep in mind, when liberals or conservatives who are otherwise seeking the truth, when you when you pre- present this false image to them, this um, what what may seem like an easy or convenient way of explaining it, but really it's not. Really, it's a false image. And when you present that to somebody who's seeking the truth, well, you know, truth speaks to truth. And so, if somebody's seeking the truth and you spit that at them, they will recognize it as being something less than the truth. And for a person who's really seeking the truth, you've lost them already. You've lost them at that point. Because, like I said, truth seeks truth. Truth recognizes truth. Truth speaks to truth. And so a person who's seeking the truth, if you speak the truth, even if it's, even if it's difficult to understand or even if it you know, uh, requires an in-depth conversation, people who seek the truth will spot that truth, and it'll mean a whole lot more to them than just that you've got the right talking points down. So libertarianism is not about being uh, socially liberal and, and fiscally conservative. and it, It's not about that. Libertarianism is about having a consistent philosophy based on the zero aggression principle and then applying that philosophy consistently to ourselves and, and to, to each thing that we think about and each thing that we consider. It's not about half-truths. It's not about compromises. It's not about what's convenient. It's about the truth and a, and a, and a commitment to non-aggression, to zero aggression. And, you know, among libertarians and among ANCAPs and among anarchists and voluntarists and all the different labels that we get comfortable putting on ourselves, we, we find a lot of individual disagreement about how to apply the zero aggression principle. But the central focus has to be about understanding the zero aggression principle, not about you know, uh, narrow little aspects of, well, is it better to get, you know, marijuana laws lightened a little bit so that the sick people can have, uh, you know, uh, medical marijuana as long as it's taxed reasonably. I mean, no, no, you, you get off the topic and you go into, you're off in the weeds when you do that. You're, 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 you know, you're swinging at the branches again instead of striking the root. Um, the conversation has to focus on what the zero aggression principle is and how do we apply it individually and among all of us. And the danger, or one of the dangers, when, when we're talking about low-hanging fruit, um, going with that metaphor, is that if you never reach and you never stretch and you never really try to reach up there into the tree and get the more difficult things, if you're always just dealing with the low-hanging fruit, then um, 
you know, it kind of gives you a certain laziness and you start to forget how to get up in there and really deal with the more, the more relevant issues. And, and to look at it on more practical terms, okay, let's just say, um, what if drugs and gay rights and prostitution and taxes and corruption, what if all those issues were suddenly solved by government? Um, you know, some, some Ron Paul-like person gets elected and, you know, out of nowhere, they fix the drug problem, they fix the gay rights issue, they fix prostitution problems, they fix tax problems, and they end government corruption. Um, all in one fell swoop. Somebody comes into government and just does this, right? Okay, um, well, would, would it then be okay for people with government titles to kidnap your children because your water heater is set too, uh, uh, set too high, set too hot? Would that be okay? Because that happens today. Uh, Children's Protective Services come in for an inspection unannounced, uh, force their way into a house using, you know, government guns if they need to, and uh, have gone through and searched through people's house and got so petty that they check the the, uh, temperature of the water, of the hot water, you know, water coming out of the faucet, and use that as an excuse to steal people's children. So, so it's okay. That's okay, right? That's okay as long as as long as some great man, some Ron Paul, uh, has the drug problem and maybe the immigration problem solved, and maybe gay rights are now taken care of, and prostitution is not a problem, and taxes are okay, and and everything's fine. So it's perfectly fine for child protective services to come in and steal your children because your water is too hot, right? You see, um, well, what about this? What about, uh, would it be okay for government goons in costumes to tase and beat your child because he, uh, he made a Pop-Tart look like a gun in the school lunchroom? Okay, so, so as long as, as long as we, uh, you know, as long as we have, um, medical marijuana, as long as, uh, the, the gay rights thing is, is taken care of, as long as the prostitution's not an issue, then they can go ahead and tase your kid in, uh, in, in, uh, public schools for, you know, making a, a paper cutout of a, of a gun and pretending to, you know, to, to hold it like a gun. Okay, so that's a good reason to take your kid into the, in the principal's office and maybe strip search him or whatever, right? Or in the one case where one, I think this was in Arizona, if I recall, one little girl was mad at another little girl, so she claimed to the teacher that the one girl had given her some Tylenol, and that was against the rules. And so what it ended up happening is the, the girl who was accused ends up in the principal or vice principal, I think it was the vice principal's office, with a complete strip search where she is searched, all of her, her, you know, her bags are searched, her lunchbox is searched, and then she's strip searched to look for the evil Tylenol that she shared with the other kid that actually never took place. It was just one kid ratting out the other because they're little kids and they lie because that's what kids do. And so we can ignore that. We can ignore all of that stuff so long as, uh, you know, our great man politician has taken care of the drug problem and maybe the immigration problem or, or you know, taxes are, are livable and, and maybe he's ended corruption in government, right? You see, it's, it's not individual issues that are the problem. Um, if uh, if a, a politician took care of these problems, the drug problem, the gay rights issue, prostitution, taxes, corruption, would that uh, justify some half-wit knuckle-dragging TSA winch from shoving your grandma out of her wheelchair at the airport so that she can stick her hands up in your grandma's crotch? Do we look the other way for that? 
as long as the taxes are not an issue? You see? No, because we're dealing with a bigger principle here than individual issues. We're dealing with something that is, that is based down in the root of what true law is. And we have the opposite of true law, which is the existence of government, the existence of goons deciding moment by moment how they're going to enforce law and what the law looks like and who gets to enforce it and who gets to, uh, to feel the enforcement. Letting your enemy define you lets your enemy define the timing of the battle, the battlefield, and the method of the battle. Sitting back and waiting for your enemy to provide the battle will guarantee the victory for your enemy. Now, when I get back from this break, I want to finish up this thought, but I want to try to get to a, a different thing that I want. I kind of touched on uh, in the last podcast last week about uh, Michael Hastings and that whole whole mess. But stick with me. I'll be right back. Would you like to do something to support BadQuaker.com? Here's how easy it is. If you're already going to buy something from Amazon, go to BadQuaker.com first. Click on any of the buttons for Amazon. Once at Amazon, shop like you normally would. You'll pay the same price for the things you buy from Amazon, but Amazon will give BadQuaker.com a tiny portion of that purchase. It's amazingly easy to shop at Amazon, it won't cost you any extra, and you'll be supporting BadQuaker.com. Thank you. Need to talk to people in a secure manner? Liberty Private Network sells phones that will work over any good internet connection and give you military-grade encryption for calls that cannot be tapped. Great for lawyers and clients, business people with trade secrets, or just ordinary folk who don't want their love talk spied on by some scumbag from the central scrutinizer. Call 516-TLKSAFE on your non-secure phone and tell them the Freedom Fiends sent you. That's 516-TLK-SAFE. Okay, thanks for sticking with me through the break. So what I was saying before the break was that basically if, you know, uh, this, this, this writer, um, if fixing the problem of drugs, gay rights, prostitution, taxes, and corruption, if that fixes what libertarians have been whining about all these years, and then libertarians keep whining about things like the TSA and, and you know, groping grandma and, and you know, tasing kids because they weren't quite, uh, you know, exactly the way that the school wanted them to be. If, if libertarians go on whining about that stuff, even after the government's fixed the drug problems and gay rights and prostitution taxes, and then really libertarians are just whiners, aren't they? I mean, really. Um, they're never going to be happy, are they? They're just going to keep whining about things, um, and that and that's the impress. That's well, and that would be a justified impression. That would be uh, that would be a justified way of thinking of libertarians. That they're, they're just a bunch of whiners. They're never going to be happy. You can't satisfy them. Look, they whined about drugs for fifty years, and then we fixed the drug problem, and now what are they whining about? Ah, they're mad because their grandma's getting felt up. See. So, so you lose the moral high ground when you allow, um, when you allow the conversation to degenerate into individual issues like that. You have to be able to keep it on, uh, you know. Again, go for the root. The root of the problem is is not 
whether or not this policy is good or bad or whether or not this policy is the best economically or not, the root of the problem is aggression. That's, that's the core issue, and that's what you have to come back to. And that gives you that moral high ground that we have to have to win this battle because that's the, ba- that's the battleground where, this, where the government itself can never tread um, the, whole, the whole concept of the state. You, you, it cannot win in the battleground of morality because there is no morality in government. Its very basis is immoral. So if you fight on the battlefield that is most advantageous to us, then you fight on the moral battlefield where the very existence of government is appalling. So, you know, when, when libertarians are lazy and they refer to themselves as socially liberal and fiscally conservative, well, you know, um, if that's the case, then why don't we just all go down and vote and elect a fiscally responsible gay drug addict uh, who's a hooker, and put them into government, and everything would be just dandy, right? Well, actually, some libertarians have been so simple-minded as to get behind ideas like that. Like, like if that's all it's going to take. We'll get the freakiest weirdo we can get, you know, and elect them as, as some kind of, uh, into some kind of position, and that'll prove to everybody we're super cool. Libertarians are where it's at, right? Could completely abandon the principles, who cares if they're, uh, you know, a gay, a drug-addicted hooker? Who cares? I don't care. If they're in government, they're the problem. But you know, but there's this image within libertarians that think that if they can just get in control of government, everything will be in fine. Everything will be fine. You know, there's that saying: uh, libertarians want want to get control. Or no, how do they say that? Libertarians want to take over and leave you alone. Well. You know, that's, that's kind of an interesting f- play of thought, but, um, but it kind of falls apart once you start really looking at it. And, it. and again, it leaves us open to this criticism by people on the left and people on the right that all libertarians are really is a bunch of freaky whiners. We want to whine about everything. Because even when, you know, like let's just say like the, the, the drug war and we can use um, um, Portugal as the example, well, you know, Okay, so they decriminalize uh, marijuana in Portugal, and then great things happen, and you know the drug usage drops, and and all kinds of great things start to happen. So okay, so let's bring that to America. Let's do that in America. All right. Well then, um, and then so that takes place, and other problems continue, and we start to complain about those. Well, again, like I said, well, then libertarians are just whiners, right? I mean, really. Um, you know, who cares if the murderers in Washington, D.C. send Hellfire missiles into restaurants to kill children in poor countries as long as it's paid for responsibly? See, that's that's the kind of men, that's that's what we set up people to think about us, that, um, yeah, the issue is not uh, whether or not drugs are good or bad or whether or not, you, you know, uh, um, whether or not taxes are, are livable or what. Uh, it's it's all as long as you're fiscally responsible with your murder machine, then it'll be okay. The problem is you guys are spending way too much and running up the debt and ruining the country. No, the problem is not that. The problem is the root of aggression, the idea that somebody can take the fruit of your labor and do something with it that you don't want them to do, or or even do something with it that you want them to do. The fact that they're taking the fruit of your labor 
That's the problem. It's not how they take it or really even what they do with it after they get it. It's the fact that, that, that a small group of people can take from you at will. That's the core issue. So it's not about whether the taxes are at 9% or 12% or 16% or 35% or 75%. It's the existence of people who believe that they have the right to take what's yours. It's back to aggression. That's the root of the, of the issue. So, you know, they throw it back at us again. It's, well, who cares if the pharmaceutical companies pump mercury into babies with vaccinations and drug your children until they sit mindlessly uh, memorizing dates so that they can have good scores on their SATs? So long as you have your medical marijuana card, everything will be fine, right? And this goes in a direction that I, I rarely talk about, things like immunization and, and uh, you know, drugging children in school to get them to just be mindless slobber buckets that sit there and memorize senseless dates so that they can pass their SATs. I hardly ever get into that kind of stuff, but it's there, you know. Um, there's a, uh, a story over at Lou Rockwell, I think it was in today's, uh, no, no, no. I think this is from uh, like a week ago or two where um, it's talking about uh, chickenpox vaccination. About 15 years ago, um, the drug company started pushing uh, chickenpox vaccinations for, for all the children because all of a sudden out of nowhere, chickenpox became this horrible disease that we don't want our children to get. Now, the funny thing about chickenpox was, you know, um, most kid in the olden days, prior to 15 years ago, most kids would get chickenpox or at least be exposed to it in some level. And different people would react different ways to chickenpox. Some kids would uh, really react pretty badly to it, where others didn't react much at all. Some people, some people, uh, would be exposed to chickenpox, and they wouldn't show any outward signs whatsoever. But the, whether you could see it or not, the chickenpox would go through their system, and they and they would develop an immunity to it. So, you know, in the U.S., prior to 15, 16 years ago, whenever it was that this uh, uh, vaccine was created for chickenpox, prior to that, almost all kids in America would be immune to chickenpox by the time they were about 6 or 10 years old. Because they had either had it or they had been exposed to it. And, uh, and well, actually, technically, they did have it. They just didn't show any signs of it. When, when I was a little kid, um, I had chicken pox. And the only thing that was obvious about it was that I did have the fever and that I did have uh, some body aches and things like that. And I got one single chicken pox uh, blister. And I still have the scar from it. It was on my leg. And, uh, and that was the only indication that it was chicken pox. Now, everybody else in my family and all the other kids around me had the full-blown chicken pox. And, well, I shouldn't say it like that. My, my, my older brother and my oldest sister had already had it years prior. My sister that was closest to me in age caught it about the same time as I did. She went through it, was broke out pretty bad. I had one blister. Okay, but that made me immune to it, uh, at least to a certain extent. Um, so, but, but pretty much even other kids who were exposed to it, who didn't show any signs, technically they still had it. It went through their system and they developed an immunity to it. So, so prior to 15 years ago, almost all kids in America, by the time they got to about 6 or 8 or 10 years old, 
they're immune to chickenpox. Now, the interesting thing about that is that if you if you don't um, uh, if you don't reencounter the chickenpox uh, again in life, then once you get really old, then you're susceptible to shingles because shingles is essentially the chickenpox that's lay that has lain dormant in your body for all these years, and then you get really old, you know, sixty, seventy, eighty years old, and it reoccurs. It comes back out, but it doesn't come back out like chickenpox. It comes out as shingles, which is in many ways far worse than chickenpox ever thought about being. Um, but but here's the interesting thing about chickenpox: if you get ch- if you're exposed to chickenpox as a child, whether you have the full blown illness or not, and then you um, Again, when you're like uh, like you're exposed to it when you're five or six, and you get it, or or your body deals with it, and you become immune, and then you're exposed again, maybe when you're in your twenties or thirties, maybe when you have kids, and your kids are like five years old, maybe you're in your forties, and your kids have chickenpox, and you're exposed to it again, and then maybe in your fifties or your early sixties, and your grandkids, your grandbabies, uh, your grandkids get chickenpox, and you're exposed to it again, and this re-exposure to the chickenpox each time, um, it it uh, practically guarantees that you're not going to get shingles because your body um, is dealing with the immunity over and over and over, and then when it re-crops up by itself uh, in your latter years, when you're 70s or 80s or whatever, when it crops back up as shingles, your body has this um, this repeated Im- immunity that it's built up, and you won't get shingles. Now, that's a really interesting thing about this chickenpox illness. But when you go through with a whole group of people, like a whole country full of people like in the U.S., and you start immunizing kids, and you prevent them from ever getting chickenpox, then you prevent the next generation of parents from ever being re-exposed and grandparents from ever being re-exposed. And so when those people who were initially uh, got chickenpox when they were five or six years old, and then they go 60, 70 years without being exposed to chickenpox again, then what do you have? You have a person who's susceptible to shingles. And what do we see on TV now? We're seeing the same companies who devised the chickenpox vaccine 15 years ago, and now all of a sudden they're selling um, treatment for shingles. Isn't that interesting? Now, I'm not saying they planned this. I don't have any evidence that they would have planned this. What I'm saying is that that the human experience, whether you believe in evolution or whether you believe in intelligent design or creation or whatever, whatever the, whatever made us the humans that we are, we have coexisted with chickenpox for a very long time. And we figured out a way, not, you know, we didn't sit down and plan it, but the human body itself um, figures out ways to deal with stuff like this. And the way the human body deals with chickenpox is to get it when we're really young and then become immune to it and then have that immunity reinforced by more exposure over the, over the course of our lifetime. And so that, so that parents who uh, uh, are re-exposed and then become grandparents and are re-exposed never have to deal with shingles when they're old. But by injecting children with this drug and cutting off the cycle, you have now made old people not only not only very susceptible um, 
to to shingles, but you've almost guaranteed that an entire generation of old people are going to get shingles. And it just so happens that uh, that big pharmaceutical companies have the perfect um, treatment for those shingles. And and you know I I know my dad got shingles uh, before some years back before he died, and. Um, he he told me that it was the absolute worst thing that he'd ever experienced. Now this is coming from a guy who had a rough life. My dad had his left hand blown off by uh, uh, blasting caps when he was like nine years old. He had uh, horrible back problems because you know growing up his whole life with no left hand while working physical labor um, distorted his backs to the point of where when he was by, by by the time he was about fifty years old his back was shot and so he was in endless pain. Um, for years from from that and and he still and you know he told me when he stopped smoking that was extremely difficult for him and it never stopped being difficult he said every day uh, he wanted to smoke and he just decided not to and he and he lived probably 10 15 years without smoking and uh, and said it was it, there was never a day when it was easy and you know he was a tough old goat and he and he just bore it and just pushed on through it and yet that's the guy that said that shingles was the worst thing he'd ever ex- experienced so so it's tough it's hard and yet uh, oh, and so when it hits you, you want something to relieve this this unbelievable pain, and uh, and there's the pharmaceutical company with the with the treatment for you right there. But yet nature would have provided that on its own. And you say, well, what about your dad? Well, you know, my dad unfortunately didn't have a whole lot of exposure to kids with uh, with chickenpox. He was out earning a living, uh, you know, out making a living, leaving the the raising of the kids to the women folk, that kind of a mentality. And so he was never exposed to chickenpox as an adult or, you know, in later age when grandkids had it. The, the families would always keep the kids isolated until they were over the chickenpox rather than, you know, having grandma and grandpa and, and all the old folks get right in there and hug them and comfort them and talk to them and read them stories and all the things that traditionally um, human beings did with sick children. Rather than doing that, in the last generations uh, in America, we wanted to isolate, especially men, uh, isolate them from the children and isolate them from sick kids and so forth and just push the men into the workplace where they don't really have any exposure to to the children. It's It's really... You know, unnatural. It really is. In the olden days, um, the, you know, a, a young a young boy would follow his dad pretty much everywhere he went. If his dad was working in a field, there was the boy next to him. If his dad was, uh, you know, going out, uh, going from farm to farm, trading this and that, well, there was the boy right next to him. In the same way with a mother and a daughter. The daughter uh, was right next to the mother in whatever it was she was doing. But that's been that pattern has been broken in the last hundred years or so, by uh, you know by the modern methods of doing things. Um, now I, I said before that I wanted to touch on this Michael Hastings thing, and so I, I need to uh, I need to move on and get to that a little bit before I take up all the time today. So I uh, I mentioned it. I didn't really go into it in depth last week when I talked about it. I, I guess I've mentioned it a couple times now, and I've never really gone into it in depth. But, um, you know, uh, okay, so there's some issues with, uh, with the car. Let me, um, let me play a real quick uh, piece here, 
and and uh, just let you hear this. And it's kind of self-explanatory. Of uh, the researchers at UCSD and the University of Washington hacking into the dashboard display of a typical American sedan, making it show that the car was going 140 miles an hour while in park. Drilling down a little bit, modern vehicles consist of between 30 and 100 embedded control units, which are essentially small computers connected via a CAN bus. These cars are required by law to have a diagnostic port, typically located under the steering wheel, that allows mechanics to download diagnostic information and to perform software updates. In a first paper, the researchers from UCSD and the University of Washington showed that if they could touch the CAN bus through that diagnostic port, they could take over all of the functionality of the car that's controlled by software. And in a modern automobile, that's pretty much everything. The brakes are controlled by software because of anti-lock braking. The acceleration is controlled by software because of cruise control. And in those fancy new cars that can park themselves, even the steering is under software control. The reaction to this first paper was somewhat muted, perhaps because if the researchers had access to that diagnostic port, they were inside the car and so already had physical access to the brakes, acceleration, and steering. They responded with a second paper in which they showed a variety of ways of touching that CAN bus without physically touching the car. These attacks involved infecting uh, the computers in the repair shop and then having that infection spread to the car through the diagnostic port or hacking in through the Bluetooth system or using the cell phone network to break in through the telematics unit that's normally used to provide roadside assistance. The most ingenious attack, though, used the stereo system in the car. The researchers were able to craft an electronic version of a song that played just fine in your home stereo system or on your personal computer. But when you put that on a CD and played it in the car CD player, it took over total control of your automobile. Yeah, right. Pretty scary, huh? And that was Kathleen Fisher. She is a program manager for DARPA. DARPA, D-A-R-P-A. DARPA is the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, is an agency of the United States Department of Defense. And I would add to that that this is, this is not secret information. This is, you know, DARPA is bragging about this. DARPA, um, the spokesman there that you heard, um, it was, it was making these statements publicly. This is not hidden stuff. And also, um, in, uh, in the last uh, show notes that I did, I put a link to the Corbett report where he uh, goes into the same story, and actually he uses part of that same clip uh, of that woman speaking, and he goes into it in, in, in much more in depth. But then I'll put a link in today's uh, show notes as well, and, and and you should go over to uh, to I think it was Friday's show notes and and follow that link to the Corbett report and hear what he has to say about it because it's really it's really interesting. Now in today's show notes, I'll put a link to a Forbes story unrelated to the Michael Hastings thing at all. But in the Forbes story, uh, and this is a YouTube uh, uh, report that Forbes did, what they actually do is they take the Forbes reporter, uh, the two of these hackers, and they put him in the driver's seat of the car, and one hacker is in the back uh, with a you know a camera and, and just basically talking to the guy and so forth. The other hacker has a, a laptop and is in control of the car. And so the Forbes reporter starts to like drive the car, and all of a sudden the hacker can yank his seatbelt so hard that he pulls basically pulls him away from the steering wheel and almost knocks his breath out by yanking the... Uh, um, the seatbelt so hard, the the reporter then accelerates the car, 
and renders the brake inoperable. And so the car takes off driving fast, and the guy's stomping on the brake, and it's doing nothing. And um, they did the same thing where the, I think, if I recall, the car was sitting stationary, and all of a sudden the car jumps into gear and rams through a bush. And the guy's, like, grabbing the wheel, grabbing the steering wheel and stomping on the brakes trying to stop it, but it's too late. The car just plows right through the bush. And uh, the same thing, he's, he's driving along and everything's fine. And all of a sudden, the steering wheel whips on him and almost yanks out of his hands and whips the car, you know. Well, uh, what they're demonstrating is that, um, that you can uh, do these things to the car in spite of the fact that the driver is there attempting to correct what's going wrong. So if we just use our imaginations a little bit and we think about uh, a person, Michael Hastings, let's just say, is driving across town, it's 3 o'clock in the middle of the night, and he's driving home or whatever, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, his car just accelerates like crazy, right? Well, the first thing he's going to do is try to stomp on the brakes, but he's also going to try to maintain his steering in a straight line to, you know, to try to con- stay in lane and stay in control of the car, um, he's going to try to do that while he's trying to stomp on the on the brakes. But if occasionally, if his seatbelt just yanks him so hard that it almost takes his breath away, and the steering wheel whips to the side at the same time, then um, then he's going to be in more involved in trying to control that steering and keep it going straight while he's trying to figure out what's going on. Now, we're talking about something that's taking place in a matter of a few seconds, not over the course of a 20-minute drive. So you imagine this guy in the middle of the night trying to drive home, and all of a sudden his car reacts like this. It takes off and just, you know, pedal to the floor, takes off, and he's stomping on the brakes. It doesn't do anything. He, he you know, maybe, who knows how an, an individual would react like that. But one thing you'd probably want to do is try to keep it in a straight line. And one of the critics of the theory that his car was taken over, one of the, one of the critics says, well, um, you know, if you're remote controlling a car, it's really difficult to control the steering because you, anybody who's played around with a remote control car knows this. Little remote control vehicles, uh, steering them is the most difficult thing. Well, that's for a couple different reasons. First off, with most remote controlled um, little toys like that, the, the, the turning radius is very tight. If you have a little toy truck that's like, you know, 12 inches long or something, the, the turning radius is, is very tight, and, and any movement at all on the tires is going to whip that vehicle to one side or to the other very quickly. And this is, if you watch RC racers uh, very much, you'll see this, that they, they very often overcorrect in driving. Um, they they oversteer the vehicle, then they overcorrect, and they end up flipping it or or spinning out or whatever. So this is one of the arguments as to why that uh, Michael Hastings' car was probably not controlled remotely, is because it's very difficult to control the steering on a remote control vehicle like that. But uh, first off, it's vastly different controlling a vehicle that's one foot long, as opposed to a full size, you know, uh, uh, Mercedes Benz which is what he was driving. Uh, the bigger the vehicle, the, the easier it is to remote steer it. Now, um, but you don't have to remote steer it. 
whoever, if, if someone took over Michael Hastings' car, they wouldn't have to remote steer it. All they have to do is remote control, uh, control the, the, the acceleration and, um, and, and not allow braking. And if they do those two things, out of sheer panic, the driver is going to attempt to drive as straight a line as possible because he's not going to want to turn. He's, he'll, he'll know that he's going to wreck if he tries to turn. So he's going to try to drive as straight as possible. And if, uh, if someone were remote controlling his vehicle like that, if once they get him into a position where there's you know a lot of big trees in the middle lane right next to him, that would be a real good time to instantly cinch down his uh, a seatbelt really hard and then give that steering wheel a yank like they do in the Forbes video. And uh, again, get over to badquaker.com to today's show notes and watch that Forbes video and look at the way they uh, play with the reporter. Look at the way the hackers play with the reporter in that. And imagine for yourself driving down the road in the middle of the night and all of a sudden your your seatbelt just yanks you back into the seat as hard as it can, almost knocks your breath away. The The vehicle accelerates to the maximum. And the brakes are doing nothing. And how how would a, a person react to that? Well, you'd attempt the best you could to try to keep it straight. You'd maybe try to reach for the, the shifter to maybe throw it into park or something, maybe throw it into neutral. But if every time you reach for that shifter, if all of a sudden the um, the seatbelt yanks you back against the seat again, every single time you start to reach for that shifter, it yanks you back. You start to reach for the emergency brake, it yanks you back again. And it doesn't take. It only takes a matter of seconds to get that car up to a speed of where um, then it plows into a tree and uh, bursts into flames. And once again, you know, a lot of cars will. Oh, here's the other thing. We're told uh, one of the LAPD uh, statements was that the that the vehicle had possibly um, struck uh, a, a water a, a, um, a fire hydrant. And that that's why it had sprayed gas out before the impact, and that's why the impact produced such a huge explosion. Well, I went on Google Earth to the actual location uh, of where Michael Hastings died, and I put the uh, the Google uh, the Google Google Maps that is not Google Earth, and I used the little man on the street thing and went in there and looked around. And the uh, there is water service that's uh, on that in that center divider. But it's all, um, it's all, there's no fire hydrants. It's all, uh, you know, because L.A. figured out a long time ago that people ram into fire hydrants and then you have to send crews out there and, and shut things down and everything. So they're, they're surface hydrants. They're not, they don't stick up. So that's kind of a problem with this, uh, you know, that the car was spreading gas before it hit. The other thing, and I'll try to wrap this up really quickly here, let's assume all that's true. Well, then why is it that as of yesterday, the LAPD continues to ignore the Freedom of Information Act requests that have been made by San Diego 6 News uh, for requesting the police report, the 9-11 call, the autopsy report, and the toxology report? Um, And uh, San Diego News 6 is also asked to see and inspect the Mercedes, and they've been denied that. Uh, why is it that, um, as of I believe it was last Friday, that uh, journalists Jason Leopold and Ryan Shapiro had to file a joint suit against the Federal Bureau of Investigation because the FBI failed to respond to Freedom of Information Act requests within the 20-day working period required by law? 
um, specifically on the Michael Hastings uh, uh, story. So why is it that the FBI is dragging their feet and refusing to cooperate? Why is it that the LAPD still, after seven weeks, hasn't released the toxicology report, toxicology report, and uh, why is it that they won't cooperate? And why is it that all the media has pretty much dropped this? Yeah, I'm searching around trying to get a, a this morning trying to get um, whatever the latest story on this because I'm I'm wondering has the toxicology report been released and it's just not being publicized or what's going on? Well, I don't know. Reporters are not talking about it. The mainstream media has completely ignored it. What about the fact that the that the family wanted the body? And before the family could get their hands on the body, the uh, L.A. coroner cremated the body against the wishes of the family. Why, why is that? Why has it taken seven weeks for the toxicology report? Why is it that there are still accusations that alcohol were involved when, um, when alcohol could be eliminated um, from the, you know, if, if, if the question is, was alcohol involved, then that question could be eliminated within a few minutes of finding the body. Because if you can get it, even if the person is dead, you can check a blood sample and determine if there's alcohol in the system or not. Why wasn't that taken care of within the first day? And why has it taken seven weeks now and we still don't have the uh, uh, toxicology report or the autopsy report? Why is it taking so long? And assuming they came out today with the toxicology report, assuming that let's just assume just just for the sake of foil hattedness, let's just assume that, say, the CIA or the FBI actually did kill this man. Why would we believe that they'd be honest with us about the toxicology report? If they killed him, if the government of the United States can single out a citizen and assassinate him, why would we believe the reports that come from the government? Well, you know, we know for a fact that the U.S. government has singled out U.S. citizens and killed them. Sometimes the only reason that the, that the individual was killed was because his father was a bad guy on a bad list that uh, that young that young teenager that was murdered by uh, you know by uh, Obama droning the whole restaurant that he sat in killing all kinds of people in the restaurant that had nothing to do with the topic that kid was never accused of anything other than the fact that his father was accused of being a bad guy so so Obama had him killed too we know that took place and if that's the case, if they'll do that to a teenage kid who's sitting in a restaurant, if they'll bomb the whole restaurant just to kill that kid, then why would we believe that they wouldn't kill somebody like Michael Hastings? Or why would we believe that they would be honest with the toxicology report seven or eight weeks after the fact? So I've run out of time. Folks, thanks for listening today. And remember to visit badquaker.com where liberty is our mission. Thanks a lot, folks.